Hello there, and welcome to the Amateur Historian Podcast. I'm your host, Sean, and in today's episode, it's going to be a little bit different. We're going to be getting into true crime, but in the context of how it actually affected world history. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about Rome's first female serial killer. She is also considered one of the world's first known serial killers, and possibly the first ever historically recorded one as well. She is a master of poisons, deceptions, and befriending the highest levels of society. Today, we're going to be talking about Locusta of Gaul, one of the most famous ancient serial killers in human history, and how she changed the course of the Roman Empire. I do need to give credit to the King's and General's YouTube channel, as I saw they did make an episode on Lucasta, and we will be talking about her, and this is who I got the idea from. So shout out to Kings and Generals, the YouTube channel. I can't wait to share what I've learned from them and a lot of my own research. And my last little statement, hello to our first listener from Ireland. Hello there. I see you, and welcome to the podcast. I'm really excited to dive in. So let's get in and see how murderous we can be. All right, so really quick, we need to get into a considerable debate among criminologists about the proper definition of serial murderer. The term serial murderer was popularized in the 1970s by Robert Ressler, an investigator with the Behavioral Science Unit of the United States Federal Bureau of Investigation, aka the FBI. The FBI originally defined serial murder as involving at least four events that take place at different locations and are separated by a cooling off period. In most definitions now, however, the number of events has actually been reduced, and even the FBI lowered the number of events to three in the 1990s. The FBI's definition has been faulted because it excludes individuals who commit two murderers and are arrested before they can commit more, and individuals who commit most of their murders in a single location. Such criticisms have led many scholars worldwide to adopt the definition put forward by the National Institute of Justice, an agency of the U.S. Department of Justice, according to which serial murder involves at least two different murders that occur over a period of time ranging from hours to years. Crimologists have distinguished between classic serial murder, which usually involves stalking and is often sexually motivated, and spree serial murder, which is usually motivated by thrill-seeking. Although some serial murderers have committed for profit, most lack an obvious rational motive, a fact that distinguishes them from political assassinations and terrorism and from professional murderers committed by gangsters. Several murderers are assumed to kill for motives such as sexual or even reactionary circumstances. In many cases, the killings are thought to give murderers a feeling of power, which they may which may or may not be sexual in nature, over their victims. Typical victims include women, migrants, prostitutes, children, homosexuals, and other different classes of marginalized communities and groups. Serial murderers have attracted immense attention in popular culture, partly because they are perceived as personifications of evil within societies. But in the Roman case, we're going all the way back. There was no need for weapons or bloodshed, as an assassin could simply insert poison into food or drink in a critical moment. Fear of such an assassination became so widespread in Roman society that many important individuals, mostly emperors, hired special servants that would in fact act as food tasters. These were often the cooks as well. And to find a proper herbalist and maker of potions, 
Roman emperors did not hesitate to look in all corners of their empire, and so it was in the lands of their province of northern Gaul they discovered a skilled woman, well versed in the use of wild herbs, plants, and poisons. Enter onto the stage Locusta. And she was most likely captured before 54 AD and brought to Rome where her deadly skills would be utilized and her skill as a maker of poisons was very quickly recognized. So it became that Locusta of Gaul was hired as a professional poisoner of the imperial court. There she became the favorite of Emperor Nero, who, as we all well know, had a particular affinity for all things that were deadly and quite odd. So what we do know about Locusta is she was born into the first century AD in one of the outer provinces of Rome called Gaul, which is modern-day France. Particularly, they think she was born in northern France, but we know that she was born in Gaul. In her early years in the countryside, it appeared that Locusta learned a great deal about herbal lore and plants around her. When she arrived in Rome, she learned that people around her were ambiguous and greedy, and there were many people in Rome in those days, because remember, the Roman Civil War had just ended and Caesar was just assassinated, who wanted to hurry along the deaths of their rivals for their riches, for political power, you name it. And they had the money to back it up. But they wanted to make sure it looked like it was natural causes and wasn't actually assassinations or poisoning. So Locusta was able to provide them with the means to accomplish their goal. And she became a professional poisoner. That's what she was known as, that she was so good at her craft, she became a professional poisoner. Though she was arrested very often for her activities, she had some influential clients among her customers, and she always seemed to get out of jail pretty quickly, because why are you going to let someone who is so effective and good at what they do to kill off your rivals and opponents? They, she could turn around and do it to you, so you might want to make sure you keep her safe and keep her happy. Several sources mention Locusta, including one of Rome's greatest historians, Tacitus. It was widely held that she was from Gaul, modern-day French, like we said, and it's not known if she immigrated to Rome or she had been brought there as a slave, but tradition states that she came from a poor peasant family, and she learned to concoct the poisons from her Celtic ancestors. So this is a little bit more background on her. Now, our modern-day knowledge of poisonous substances known to the Romans is derived from the writings of Dysocrates, who differentiates between drugs of animal, vegetable, and mineral kingdoms. Vegetable poisons were best known and most frequently used. Those most mentioned in ancient sources are poison hemlock, the poison that actually killed Socrates, deadly nightshade, monk's hood, thorn apple, autumn crocus, black henbane, and many others. They were all probably known to the Romans. There is no evidence that there was any cyanide extracted from kernels of fruits, but it is mentioned in the sources. So these ancient cities and these ancient emperors could not really distinguish between edible mushrooms and poisonous mushrooms. And that's going to come, put a pin in that. That comes up later. And especially poisonous mushrooms looked like mushrooms that you could eat. And they were very easily mixed up and confused. However, in a culture of high superstition, when scientific ignorance about its effects made the detection of poisoning virtually impossible, it was very difficult to prove incidents of poisoning. It is likely that many poisoners went unpunished while innocent civilians were wrongly condemned. Therefore, many of the, quote, poisons were also used in medications, differing only in the amounts that were given. 
Because remember, medicine isn't all up to snuff during this time. This is the Roman Empire. This is only the first century AD. And so it can obviously, you can make a mistake if you don't know which herb is which. You can't tell what's poisonous or not. So it makes sense that this would happen. Now in Rome, Locusta, she appears to have teamed up with two different women forming an infamous trio of female prisoners. The exact nature of the relationship between these women is unknown, but Locusta was the most prominent. She was either the most accomplished of the trio or possibly their leader. It seems that their services were much in demand, especially from the richest in society. And their poisons were suspected in many murderers. Indeed, they ended up in prison at least twice, but each time they were released after their interventions from some of the their aristocratic allies and clients and other rich people in their societies. Now, around 54 AD, Locusta got secret summons from the Empress Agrippina, the fourth wife of Emperor Claudius. Agrippina's ambitions were very clear. She wanted Nero, her son from a prior marriage, to be the Emperor of Rome. To accomplish this, the 64-year-old Claudius needed to die. And that's where Locusta came in. Agrippina knew that Claudius dearly loved mushrooms. She also knew the emperor had food tasters. So the two women devised a plan. One evening, the, close, the emperor's closest aide was sick, and Agrippina bribed the food taster to stay out of the way. And Locusta poisoned a large batch of mushrooms. After serving the emperor much wine, Agrippina brought the poisoned mushrooms to Emperor Claudius herself. Unsuspecting, Claudius gobbled up the toxic delicacy without any worry. Soon, the emperor was doubled over with stomach cramps, gasping for air, unable to speak. Agrippina, the devoted wife that she was, fluttered frantically to his side to try to help him and address his concern. Perhaps the dear emperor had eaten something that disagreed with him. So Locusta provided her second trick. She provided a second weapon that Agrippina now wielded, a feather that was laced with another dose of poison on it. In her apparent excitement to render aid to her stricken husband, Agrippina ran the poison feather down his throat, allegedly to expel the toxic substances from his stomach. Hmm. Apparently was very excited to help her husband. <laughs> now, on October 13th in 54 AD, Emperor Claudius was dead and the 16-year-old Nero was named Emperor. Now, of course, Agrippina was thrilled. Locusta was arrested and thrown into prison, obviously, and was given a death sentence. But Nero had rivals of his own, and he had his own fears. And Claudius had a 14-year-old son from a previous marriage named Britannicus. Nero knew that Britannicus also had a claim to, quote, his throne, and Nero needed to make sure that Britannicus was taken out of the way forever. So quietly, a few months after becoming emperor, Nero ordered Lucustus release from prison and developed a new plan for her services. One evening, at a family dinner, there was wine that was brought in and poured into goblets. The food tasters each tried the goblets of wine and handed the goblets to the family members. Nero, his mother Agrippina, and several other close relatives, the young Britannicus, were completely unaware of the plot that was about to happen. As Britannicus took a sip of the wine, he handed it back to the taster, complaining that the wine was too hot. It was customary at the time in Rome, in the first century AD, to dilute their dinner wines with hot water. The food taster added some cold water into the wine and handed it back to the boy. But this is where the poison was admitted. The taster failed to taste the cold, clear water that had been handed to Britannicus and his goblet of wine, 
and that's where Locasta had slipped her very potent poison into. As Britannicus fell ill and fell into convulsions, Nero calmly reminded the dinner party that Britannicus suffered from epilepsy and refused to summon any assistance for the convulsing boy. Agrippina's anguish was excruciating. She knew exactly what her son was doing. She recognized the plot instantly, and he did it without consulting her. She began to eat her dinner calmly, careful not to let her face show any sign of the terror that was filled in her heart, that she could possibly be the next target. The other family members soon conformed to the calm and cautious return to the evening meal, while the boy floundered and convulsed on the floor. But no one was brave enough or foolish enough to do anything about Britannicus while Emperor Nero was there and against Emperor Nero's wishes. Presently, Nero called for one of the servants to remove Britannicus from the room. The emperor's would-be rival died a few hours later and was hesitantly buried that same night despite a great storm and major gossip throughout the people of Rome. It is even suspected that they painted Britannicus's face white with chalk because the poison made his whole face red with blood and the people of Rome saw it during the storm. Now, while Emperor Nero was one of her very satisfied customers, Locusta enjoyed a growing reputation and expanding wealth. The emperor lavished her with land, money, gifts, and a full pardon, get this, a full pardon for all the poisonings she had been charged with over the years and any that she would possibly commit in the future. There were many imperial referrals and more assignments, and Locusta became very busy with her contract work and poisonings for hire, and even opened up a school where she taught others that her knowledge of herbs and toxins. For the next 14 years, 14 years, Locusta, the poisoner, as she was now being referred to as, not only performed risk-free assassinations on behalf of the one on behalf of one of Rome's most ruthless emperors. But she also opened up a school where she trained other women in the fine arts of making unsuspecting poisons and making people bleed from their eyes and noses and mouth. It was gruesome. She trained very infamous and famous people, including a woman by the name of Martina, who ended up becoming, as well, one of the women associated with Germanicus's death, among many others, which is another episode for another time. She also continued her studies of chemistry and biology, learning new formulas and testing them out at the Emperor's request on convicted criminals, slaves, and anyone else she wanted to. It is expected that her school killed hundreds, if not thousands, of prisoners and slaves, and many other rich nobles and anyone else. It is unknown how many people she personally killed, but we can probably be safe to say it's at least in the tens of people without too much concern. With the patronage of the Emperor Locusta enjoyed a great period of business and success until the Roman Senate finally gathered the nerve to condemn Nero to death in 68 AD. Locusta had thoughtfully furnished Nero with a poison kit for himself. Unfortunately, in the confusion of the moment, Nero left the kit behind. Before he could be brought before the Roman Senate to stand trial for his many crimes, Nero killed himself with his own dagger. As for Locusta, after Nero's demise, she tried to keep a low profile, but her vast reputation as a professional poisoner no longer supported by the favor of the emperor, Locusta was later executed that year. Locusta was sentenced to death, and this time there was no one to help her and no way for her to evade justice. It appears that she died while being dragged through the city streets in chains along with others who had been supporters of Nero. 
Discretion warning, this gets a little dark here. So if you are a little sensitive to hearing really creepy things, this next segment probably isn't for you. According to one legend, she was tortured and humiliated in the arena and later torn apart by animals. We can be certain that she died a gruesome death. The story of Locusta entered Roan's popular culture. Her name became a byword for evil and poisoning. There's even a story, Locusta the Sorceress, who was raped to death by a giraffe, did rounds for a long time as the infamous legend. But there's another legend where she was led in chains through the whole city and then executed, which is most likely what happened. But these legends are here to emphasize how evil of a woman she was and how cruel she also was, but also how successful she was in her practice. Locusta holds the title of history's first recorded serial killer of poisoning and murdering thousands of people because of her school and what she did. She poisoned for pleasure and for gain, eventually becoming one of Rome's most intriguing characters. Not gonna lie, looking up this character in the historical context is super fascinating, and she changed the course of Roman history. I mean, she got rid of one emperor, a possible another emperor, and I don't even want to think about how many nobles she assassinated. She could have ultimately changed the course in the entire Roman empire. I mean, what if Britannicus took control of the empire instead of Nero? What if another noble family took over or she didn't assassinate some political rivals and they gained power? There's so much that could have happened that would have been different if she wasn't in the picture, which is why this character was so important to the Roman empire, because it could have changed the whole course of not only the Roman empire, but the entire Western world. And I really thought this was cool, and this was really fascinating for me to research and study. So, I hope you like that. It's a little bit different. It's not what I'm typically used to or what I typically do. I actually also have to announce I bought an audio interface. So, my sound quality is hopefully going to go up. I have the extension cord for the mic on the way. It's going to be amazing. I'm really excited to get that going and get that started. But how can you reach me? How can you tell me if you like this episode, if you want another episode like this, if you want something about the Roman Empire, talk about a Caesar's campaign or a battle. The best way to do that is you can email me, the amateur historian podcast at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Sean underscore Kierce or my Instagram, which is at running Olaf. You can follow me on Twitch at twitch.tv slash amateur gaming 36. Come see me laugh, rage, play video games, some historical, some first-person shooter, and that's where we have a lot of fun. This podcast is available on Anchor, Breaker, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Radio Public, and of course, Spotify. We are also on Apple Podcasts, of course, so if you would go and leave a review there, I would highly appreciate it. It really helps me out. If you want to support me personally, you can Venmo me at Sean-Kierce. You should see a picture of this podcast logo as the name for it, and that's where you can donate. Thanks for listening. I really hope you enjoyed this episode, and you'll have to come back in two to three weeks to see what the next episode is. I can't wait to see you all, and I hope you learned something new today. Good day, good evening, good night. We'll see you later.